here. Okay, now today we're going to be looking at Kant. I came up with this cute little name. Remember we looked at uh, Aquinas last week and we we're going to look at how Immanuel Kant uh, basically criticized uh, Aquinas. So I called it Immanuel Kant contra Aquinas. See, contra is against. <laughs> I just put them together. Okay, so his book, um, The Critique of Pure Reason, that one right there, uh, he also has uh, The Critique of Practical Reason, um, but this book was published in 1781, uh, right around, you know, the Articles of Confederation, right around the founding of America, right after the Re American Revolution. And we all think, you know, in the last 300 years, that's like the greatest uh, revolution in the world, and particularly in Western society. But really, the Kantian Revolution really changed the world. Okay, and so what we're going to be looking at today, I, I, what I have to do is avoid the, the temptation to really t go into Kant and his philosophy. So what we're going to look, this is going to be a bird's eye view, overview, a very <laughs> narrow uh, focus on him until we meet back, at, back with him later. Remember, right now, we are going through a series of apologetics, specifically just on apologetics. After that, we'll go into a history of ideas, and, and we'll look at uh, Kant more, I mean, not exhaustively, but more. Um, but, so, uh, Kant was uh, born in 1724, uh, he died in 1804, he was, so I'm going to go by this, so I don't go on a bunch of rabbit trails. <laughs> um, it, he was bo born in Konigsberg, uh, Germany, he only traveled 100 miles outside of his city, but, you know, his philosophy traveled the globe. I mean, uh, it, but, and we'll get to that. So Aquinas had constructed the classical synthesis. I don't really like this. Uh, um, which dominated, so the classical synthesis are the three, um, well, there are four technically, but there, there are three arguments for the existence of God. And we'll get to that here in a second. But um, this dominated uh, the academic world at that time. Uh, even skeptics uh, who didn't believe in the existence of God were so convinced by the, the cosmological argument or these, these different arguments that, that religion, especially faith in, in, in philosophy and science, was the, uh, the remember that's when we had gotten, we had seen in the mid, medieval ages, uh, in the middle ages, the theology was the queen of the sciences and philosophy was her handmaiden, remember that? Okay, now the classical uh, synthesis is really the, the principal arguments or the ontological argument, that's really argument the, which we briefly looked at when we looked at ontology, we'll get back to all these at a later date. But that's uh, the argument for God's existence from being, which we briefly looked at. The cosmolo cosmological argument is really an argument based on causality. You know, we see uh, everything as an, you know, cause basically effect. as effect in cause and effect. Yeah. Teleological, we briefly mentioned, it, uh, mentioned this. Telos comes from design or purpose or end. So when you see design in the world, that points toward an, an, a designer an intelligent designer specifically because it's so ordered we, we have that's why cosmological that comes from the word cosmos and so we have cosmos and not chaos again we'll get back to these and then there's the moral argument that we'll come we'll look at much later but actually Kant does not uh, argue this one he argues all these and we'll look at that uh, uh, as we go along but he actually embraces the moral 
argument for practical reasons, which we'll look at. So remember, we looked at David Hume. Um, remember with the pool ball, remember that great piece of art that I had done with the pool ball uh, illustration and all that? When Kant read Hume, because what Hume did, what Hume was, was basically an empirical, uh, empiricist, skeptic, he was a skeptic of, of empiricism. Empiricism, remember, is uh, what, what you prove through sciences, through sense perception, okay? And, and uh, Hume was skeptical about that. And so what Kant was doing, Kant, Kant said when he read Hume, he was awakened from his dogmatic slumber, and he really sought to save science. Okay, he wanted to save science from complete to, from degenerating into complete skepticism. Okay, so he was seeking to save science. In so doing, uh, he laid his axe at the root of the classical synthesis. And in well, we'll we'll get to that. So he really and he was a believer. He he was not an atheist. He was a believer. Uh, but basically, he thought that the church had degenerated into too much of a dependence on human reason. Okay, and we'll look at how he. Uh, I'm just kind of setting the scene up uh, here uh, a little bit. Um, yeah, so, and what, well, we'll get to that. So Kant came up with basically two realms uh, in the world. Um, um, Kant was not, yeah, okay. Do, 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 do. Okay, yeah. So Kant, again, he himself was a believer. Uh, he affirmed the existence of God. He just said you can't know the existence, existence of God from natural reason, which we're going to see. So he came up with two realms, basically. And this, remember my uh, art, my awesome art from last week, with the rays uh, coming down from the uh, objective truth of God and coming down to man. And we saw that chasm, remember that barrier. And, and so he's saying there's this unbridgeable chasm between these two realms. You have the noumenal world, realm, which basically consists of the idea, the idea of God, the idea of the self, and the idea of German Ding on seek yeah. basically uh, which basically is the idea of essences and and his idea we've talked about essence you know that's substance being and all that he kind of looks at it differently so when we uh, look at Kant again we'll we'll look at that more specifically so that's in the noumenal world the idea of God the idea of self the, the idea of essences and then we have the phenomenal world. The, the phenomenal world is the world of appearances, or that which can be studied or analyzed um, scientifically. So anything we can uh, uh, see or, or notice or study or analyze by our senses, either seeing, tasting, touching, hearing, all of that. Okay? And so what he's saying is you cannot get here, you cannot get to the noumenal from the phenomenal. All our knowledge is restricted in the phenomenal. Okay, I have to tell you, this was groundbreaking. This this changed the world. This changed uh, the classical uh, theological um, analysis that 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 existed for thousands of years through the brilliance of even Augustine. So he's going up again, and remember that chasm. Okay. Let's just get to that here in a second. Let me make sure I'm not losing anything here. That's right, that's right. We cannot get to the noumenal world. Um, do, 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 skeptical. Um, yeah, okay. Well, let me just quickly say, so he says, uh, ultimately, I think I actually have this. Uh, do, 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 do. 
Yeah, okay. No, we'll get to that in a second. Okay, here's some Latin. Um, so, a priori and a posteriori knowledge. So, he, what he's saying is the question of the existence of God and how we pro- how we uh, even can come up to, with uh, the idea of God or the idea of self or the idea of, of uh, essences is really epistemological. Basically, how do we come up with knowledge? How do we attain knowledge? In the history of uh, theoretical thought, you have a priori and a posteriori. A priori means before experience. A lot of people get this confused with meaning like before birth. These are things you're just born with. That's not what it's saying. It's saying before experience. A posteriori is after experience. Okay. So when we think of uh, the law of contradiction, uh, right? Uh, So you actually know that law or even the law of causality. You know, you know that before you experience it you know so when you when you note when you come to your first contradiction kind of a thing you already know it's a contradiction you know uh, if you kind of think about it um, so are these innate ideas you know which we are which we do have before we experience them or are these things that we learn after the experience Okay, now he's okay. No, no, I'm not gonna. Okay, you have to understand. I'm trying to stick with the view of this particular one until we see him again later on. Okay, so the in his critique of uh, uh, practical reason, so the other one of that one uh, of that book, it's a following book that he came out with. Uh, Kant said we ought to we ought to live as the, though there is a God. Remember, we mentioned Dostoevsky, who said, you know, uh, if God does not exist, all things are permissible. And uh, where did he finish off here? Um, man, I need to do this better. Yeah, uh, all things are permissible, uh, and as all laws are reduced to preferences, there is no such thing as what we what ought to be done, only what is done. Ultimately, if there is no God, that's 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 the ramifications for that. So, out of practical reason. He just thinks that we ought to live as though there is a God, uh, because basically all of civilization will degenerate into, you know, anarchy and uh, basically it's the law of the jungle or where nature is red in tooth and claw. That's in the evolutionary. Okay. Um, Okay. Now Kant uh, thought the classical synthesis, so all of these different arguments, particularly these three, again, these are the ones he attacked, the ontological, the cosmological, and the teleological. What he was saying is basically they are, they are all ultimately uh, ontological. They're all under a heading, which we'll look at some other time. But that's why he's really going against, that's why last week we looked at uh, uh, I mean Aquinas' ontological uh, uh, remember that uh, analogy of being and all that kind of stuff. Um, but that's why we looked at that. Um, so now, ultimately, okay, let's talk about Anselm. So Anselm was born in uh, 1093 and died in 1109. Uh, he, he was born in Italy. Um, so he, he said that God is that being apart from which no greater being can be conceived. Okay, or to put it another way, God is the greatest conceivable being. And the greatest conceivable being must be conceived as, of as really existing because if you're thinking of the greatest conceivable being as merely a construct of the mind, which is kind of what he's talking about, uh, just an idea with no correspondence to reality, you are not thinking of the God that Anselm 
was mentioning the great the greatest conceivable being so he basically he's he, he laid out initially and we're going to look at it in some another time too but um uh, basically it's it's better it's better to be than not to be existence is preferable to non-existence and so when in being noticing that there are beings there we must there must be a perfect being remember we had mentioned that but god is that perfect the highest greatest conceivable being and we, and we that we can conceive of and we can only conceive him as being otherwise if he's not then we can't conceive of anything anyway because <laughs> we're not around <laughs> anyway uh, and we'll again we'll we'll explore that more um, um, as we go along and so what what uh, Kant said was basically just because I have an idea of the perfect well, he said $100, but let's just narrow it down to a dollar. Just because I have the perfect idea of a dollar doesn't mean that that dollar, perfect dollar exists. It just means I have a, an idea of a perfect dollar. In fact, in Anselm's time, a man named Gonalo responded similarly. He said, he said basically, I have this, greatest, uh, this idea of the greatest conceivable island, uh, but that just because I have this conception of the greatest conceivable island, it doesn't mean that you know that island exists. And Anselm repli replied, just like we ought to reply to Kant, we're not talking about islands or dollars. Though, yeah, the idea of a dollar is just the idea of a dollar. But we're not talking about dollars. We're not talking about islands. We are talking about the greatest conceivable being. So this is a completely different category. You can't liken the greatest conceivable being to an island or, 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 uh, or even a dollar. It's specific to the greatest conceivable being. Okay. Um, again, Kant said that all the arguments boil down to some form of the ontological argument. Because basically what you're saying is that in order to be rational... Reason demands the existence of God, but just because reason demands that God exists doesn't mean that God exists. All it says is that reason demands it. But maybe reality, you know, in the final analysis is not rational, which is why many people went from Kant's critique to some philosophies of irrationalism, such as existential, existentialism, relativism, or relativism, which pervade our day. Many, many of the schools of irrationalism came from Kant. Kant set, set the groundwork basically for many of the ideas of, uh, of, of Western thought in particular. So, and what many theologians did, you know, in responding to Kant is they just, they just cashed in their chips and they just accepted it. And so they, they, they basically said, okay, and that's where we got uh, uh, that, that school of thought where uh, you know, you take out all the supernatural and, and, and all you do is conceive of God through faith. You have to assume God exists before uh, you can even prove that he exists, all that kind of a thing, which is called fideism. Remember, we, we briefly mentioned that. And basically, those are the people who, claim, who proclaim that faith, faith is this like blind leap, you know, this just leap into faith. You know, there's just kind of look, that is not faith. Faith is rational. It's not rationalism, which is something we're going to look at, but faith must be rational. Again, it has information. Remember the um, notitia. It has information, and that information we're going to see is essential. This is historic. This is, this is real-time, real-world uh, implications, and this has had 
profound implications. So again, many theologians basically cash in their chips, but other theologians refuse to play dead. You know, and they're, they're, they've, they've, they've been, we've been, or people have been developing a response to Kant, and we're still doing that. And I think, I think that, I think that work, I think that work is essential. And the reason is because I, we need to be faithful to Scripture. Man, if Kant is right, manifestly Paul is wrong. And if Paul is wrong, our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. We have no hope. Okay? All right. Um, any questions on that specifically? It's a lot. Okay, I mean, it, we're going to start getting into more um, esoteric, into a little bit more um, thought-provoking information. Um, but it's important that we, we look at this. It's important we recognize how this, is, how this is shifted into our time and how we need to respond to it. Real quickly, on a bit of a rabbit trail, um, his epistemology is likened to a sausage maker. You know, you've got this funnel, and you just throw in all this stuff. <laughs> you just throw in all this stuff, which we'll talk about. And then out of the funnel comes knowledge. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, you know, uh, Kant was a brilliant man, um, but uh, he's just been assumed. You know, when in the history of ideas, which we'll see, um, when remember when we looked at uh, Parmenides and Heraclitus, when those two giants of philosophical thought were at odds, that produced a widespread of, of skepticism. And that's always been the history of, of thought. When two giants, when Plato and Aristotle were, weren't reconciled, there was a huge uh, gap of skepticism until Augustine came. Augustine really um, synthesized them. And then, you know, after, after Kant, has been skepticism. That's why people don't don't think that you know you can prove the the existence of God, and they just assume it because the culture says that. Because this is so manifest in our modern worldview, we'll get to worldview sometime too. We need to get to worldview soon, but we'll get to that. But again, we're, we this is going to we we won't look at Kant again for a while, but we are going to see this in many other areas. Okay, all right, so. What we're reading today is book three, chapter seven, and I've uh, learned that these are called pages, these little numbers here. I have no idea, but that's what they are. Um, is it this one? I think it's this one. Is it this one? Yeah, no, it's this one. Um, yeah. Okay, so he says, for I was ignorant of that other reality, true being. And so it was that I was subtly per persuaded to agree with these foolish deceivers when they put their questions to me. Whence comes evil? And is God limited by a bodily shape? And has he hairs and nails? And are those patriarchs to be esteemed righteous who had many wives at one time and who killed men and who sacrificed living creatures? In my ignorance, I was much disturbed over these things. And though I was re retreating from the truth, I appeared to, my, uh, I appeared to myself to be in to be going toward it, because I did not yet know that evil was nothing but a privation of good, so a negation of good, uh, that indeed it has no being. And physical objects in the sight uh, of my mind reach no farther than, than to phantasm, phantasms. 
And I did not know that God is a spirit who has no parts extended in length and breadth, who, whose being has no mass, for every mass is less in a part than in a whole. And if, be, if it be an infinite mass, it, it must be less in such parts as are limited by a certain space than in, than in its infinity. It cannot therefore be holy everywhere as spirit is, as God is. And I was entirely ignorant as to what is that principle within us by which we are like God, and which is rightly said in scripture to be made after God's image. Um, oh yeah, and then this just little part I really like. Uh, this is what happens whenever thou art forsaken, O fountain of life, who, are the, who art the one and the true creator and ruler of the universe. This is what happens when, through self-willed pride, a part is loved under the false assumption that it is the whole. Okay, what he's saying is basically being, right, and especially God's supreme being. Okay, let me put it this way. So Kant is saying there's an unbridgeable chasm from this world to the noumenal world, right? The phenomenal to the noumenal. What Kant is, what Augustine's basically saying is, let's say that's true. There's no chasm to stop the noumenal from going into the phenomenal. God shares his revelation. God gives us his revelation, his general revelation. Okay, and, and I can't wait to look at Kant, I'd love to give my own humble critique, um, but uh, we'll look at that some other time. Any questions? Take that as a no.